Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for tuning into the conversation on this Tuesday, October 27th. Hawaii's hemp farmers are transitioning to come under the purview of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The date is November 1st, and that's just around the corner. We hear about what's involved in the transition. We get an update on the challenges COVID-19 has created around climate change, and we count our blessings. The weather has been pretty mild so far, just another month to go on hurricane season. And we prepare to launch a new segment, Manu Minute. We learn about our native birds, hear their calls, and find out more about why it's a race against time to keep them alive. Those conversations and a few more right after the latest headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. At the Supreme Court today, Chief Justice John Roberts administered the judicial oath to the court's newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett. The ceremony was private, as NPR's Nita Totenberg reports. The ceremony took place in the East Conference Room of the court with everyone masked. Present were Barrett's husband, Jesse, but not her children, and she took the judicial oath on the family Bible. Also there were the other members of the court and retired Justice Anthony Kennedy. Justice Stephen Breyer listened in by phone from his home in Massachusetts. Barrett has already begun to work and moved into the chambers of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Her first order of business may be a motion filed today by a county board of elections in Pennsylvania asking Barrett to recuse herself from a challenge to Pennsylvania's election procedures brought by state Republicans. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden traveled to Warm Springs, Georgia today, where he told an audience if he's elected, Americans should clear the decks for action on everything from the coronavirus pandemic to the ailing economy. Biden also going after comments by members of the Trump administration who have said the administration cannot control the coronavirus by equating it to waving a white flag. President Trump, for his part, has a busy day of campaigning in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nebraska. A week ago until the election, more than 66 million Americans have already voted. NPR's Greg Allen reports it's the most ballots ever cast in early voting. Because of the coronavirus, nearly all states expanded early voting opportunities and mail or absentee ballots. The number of ballots cast already is close to half of the total votes recorded in 2016. Early vote expert Michael McDonald of the University of Florida says that in Texas, the tally is already more than 80 percent of the total vote in the last presidential election. In states that released the information, Democratic voters have run up a big lead in mail ballots. But in Florida and other key states, Republicans are now outpacing Democrats in in-person early voting. McDonald says the U.S. is on a pace to see at least 150 million votes cast and a 65 percent turnout, the highest in more than a century. Greg Allen, NPR News. Tropical storm Zeta made landfall in Mexico as a hurricane Monday. Emma Peasley reports forecasters expect the storm to hit the Gulf Coast on Wednesday. Hurricane Zeta weakened as it made its way over the northern Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. But forecasters expect Zeta to regain hurricane strength as it heads toward the Gulf Coast. Robert Pash with the National Hurricane Center says that includes rain, strong winds, and uh, storm surges, which could be as high as five to eight feet. Pash says hurricane warnings are in effect for Louisiana, Mississippi, and the Alabama coastline. And residents there should take precautions. Emma Peasley, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 222 points. This is NPR.
Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Clark, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. You're listening to The Conversation on HCR One. Good morning, I'm Gerald Malone. At 9-11-04, the stay-at-home order and travel restrictions for Lynette will begin today. The order requires travelers and visitors to remain at home or in their lodgings except for essential reasons, such as grocery shopping. Maui County Mayor Michael Victorina says the order will remain in effect initially for two weeks but could be extended as Lynette COVID-19 cases continue to rise. The outbreak on Lenetli has increased to 79 cases, according to the State Department of Health, but health experts predict it could grow into the triple digits. Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell wants the Brave Authority to adopt another plan to finish the transit line to Ala Moana. Caldwell last month pulled the city from a public-private partnership to build the last four miles of the route because of prompts and delays. The city in heart now needs a plan for the final way by December 30th, or they risk losing $250 million in federal funds. Because Park CEO Andy Robbins has to stop pursuing the private partnership and start working with the city. Robbins said in a statement, the public-private partnership is still the best plan moving forward. Park's board of directors will meet today to determine how to proceed with the project. There's a flash flood watch through Thursday for Kauai and Oahu. Mostly partly sunny skies today. Scattered showers with a slight chance of thunderstorms through today. Heavy rainfall possible to highs of 80 to 85 and variable winds to 15 miles per hour. This is HPR 1. This is Hawaii Public Radio. As you just heard, and we're taking a quick break from the program to ask you to become a financial supporter of the radio station. Good morning. My name is Ryan Kennedy. I'm a news reporter for Hawaii Public Radio. And uh, before we go into the conversation, we're just going to take a few minutes as part of our uh, semi-annual pledge drive to raise money to help keep Hawaii Public Radio on the air and programs like the conversation uh, reporting the news and uh, and, every and the culture that you look for. Um, we were trying to raise... $6,000 this hour before 12 noon in support of the conversation and Catherine Cruz and, and the, the crew over there. Uh, and so help us uh, be a part of that. You can go to hawaiipublicradio.org or call one 536 4700 And uh, my partner this morning, Gavin Goff, uh, Hawaii Public Radio's marketing director, is going to give you a little bit of an incentive to give today. Yes, I do have a quick update first, though. That is that we met the match of the previous hour. Thank you so much to everyone who contributed and helped us get there. Of course, we have another goal to meet this hour. And if you need an incentive to make a contribution, every contribution to HPR before 7 p.m. tonight will not only help pay for the programming that you love, it will also enter you into our sweepstakes for a pair of round-trip tickets anywhere Alaska Airlines flies. Alaska Airlines flies. Give a sustaining gift of 5 to $10 a month. You'll be automatically entered at hawaiipublicradio.org or call 888-536-4700. And any donation of any amount will get you entered for that. Uh, and so please consider uh, going to hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the Donate button, uh, and you don't need to check anything special. You'll automatically be entered. You can also be entered when you call one 536 4700 uh, thank you so much to everyone who has already supported the station. We're going back now to Catherine Cruz and the conversation. 
Thanks so much, Ryan and Dabney. You know, our economic crisis has spurred lots of emphasis on diversifying our economy and looking to boost local agriculture. Hemp is a crop that has long had a cheering section, but the regulation has been an uphill battle for farmers. We talked to Steve Rose of the Maui Hemp Institute about how farmers will now have to apply for permits with USDA. It's been very challenging. I mean, good thing we could say is we at least now can begin to grow hemp on a commercial basis. One of the unfortunate situations was going from a state-run program was now turned over to a federally-run program through the USDA. And that caused many problems for us small farmers here. Right. So on November 1st, that kicks in, correct? Yeah. If you have your permit by November 1st, you can actually start planting hemp, you know, according to all the federal and state rules and regulations. We have two sets of regulations now. It's uh, quite challenging. You know, at the last minute, some people living on ag land next to one of the pilot programs uh, put up a big fuss. So now they put in a, a 500-foot limit. You can't grow hemp closer than 500 feet to a, an existing residence. And people build a lot of houses on ag land, and, you know, and they complain about the pig farms and the flower farms, and now they're complaining about the hemp farms. But it is ag land, so the 500-foot bar really made a lot of problems for a lot of small farmers that wanted to grow hemp. They have neighbors next door that don't mind, but the law now says they can't grow. So in order to grow hemp, you have to have quite a big piece of land to uh, isolate where the hemp grow is. So do you think some um, of the farmers are going to drop out? Uh, many didn't apply. I mean, basically, you know, the ones that are involved in the program had already gotten their permits. You know, we don't know what's going on. A lot of people got permits. A lot of people were turned down on permits. The biggest problem we have here is that we don't have a proactive uh, state support for our hemp program. All they want to do is find out and limit it and regulate it and find out how they can, you know, have more control and create more bureaucratic positions as opposed to getting behind a crop that has thousands of uses, food, fuel, building materials, clothing, and, of course, the uh, medicines that are now coming out. You know, we should have a state that should be supporting our hemp industry. Our economy has crashed due to tourism. People say we need agriculture. Hemp is a very valuable crop. Uh, medicinal crop has a very high value to it, and uh, hemp, Seeds are the highest source of protein and omega-3 oil on the planet. We can use hemp seeds to feed our chickens and create eggs. We can use hemp fiber to build houses and building material. We import 100% of our building materials to the islands. We can actually grow it here. And uh, a hemp tree house, which is made from the hemp fiber, basically is mold and mildew resistant and pretty fireproof. Um, so... You know, why we don't have more interest in it as opposed to opposition to moving forward with this plant always baffles me. But I've been at this for 52 years now, so I'm an optimist. We're going we're gonna to do it eventually. You know, it's going to be a slow start. But we do have people now applying to do commercial permits, even though it's been quite an onerous task for some. Talk but about all the clearances that, that the farmers have had to have. Well, one of the things that came up kind of at the last minute was when they turned the program over to the federal uh, jurisdiction. And the federal, you know, still has marijuana as a controlled substance, which is, you know, hemp's cousin. They're all cannabis plants. It's all based on an arbitrary THC level that was created years ago with no rhyme or reason. So in order to be considered hemp, it has to have under 0.3% of THC in the plant. And... Being under federal jurisdiction, that meant that uh, you basically now to get a hemp permit, 
you have to be fingerprinted and have FBI clearance before you can even turn in your permit, which doesn't sound too terrible. It's bad enough as it is. But the big problem is, is that there is no place that you can get fingerprinted and FBI clearance in the state of Hawaii. All that is done on the mainland. So our farmers here can do it by mail, which they estimate is a three-month process, and good luck with the mail, or actually have to go to the mainland. And we have one uh, very dedicated Kanaka farming group here on Maui that really is working for years, planning their hemp operations, waiting to get the permit. And they literally had to shut down their farming operations, fly four of their farmers to Seattle to be fingerprinted and get the FBI checked, and then come back to Maui. And those four farmers have been away from their families for three weeks in quarantine now, a week for travel and two weeks in quarantine, just to put their permit in. Hopefully they'll have their permit before November 1st, and these guys can plant. But this is a major effort. No small farmer on the island could do that. And while the hemp permitting process is pretty simple, the amount of time and delay and complications, it's not very supportive. It really puts all the pressure on the farmer. And it's okay if you're a big corporation and you've got staff and secretaries and lots of money. But if you're a farmer trying to make ends meet and want to add hemp to your crop rotation for many reasons, it kind of takes it out of the picture, unfortunately. Under the pilot, a number of the farmers, their crops had to be destroyed because the THC levels were too high. What's the snapshot of the crops now? Are you folks able to sell anything? Once the new USDA permits come in place, then you can actually grow hemp for commercial sale. And it has to be tested in the field. And they're testing the tops of the flowers and not the whole plant. So, I mean, they really, everything is against the poor farmer. You know, the top of the flower has the most THC, but it's, you know, maybe one you know, 16th of the total biomass of the plant, you know, and we're looking at biomass when we grow plants. The biomass is the entirety of the plant, including the flower, the stems, and the stalks, and that has, you know, so many various uses. So literally anybody who's going to be growing hemp now on a commercial operation, which is allowed, almost has to have a lab on site. They have to test their plants in the field. They have to harvest in time before the THC, it said, the term is getting hot. So before the plant gets hot, you need to harvest it and not grown big commercial crops here in Hawaii. So that's a big unknown for a lot of farmers. And a lot of farmers now, we have no labs. Okay, there's one lab on Oahu that can test cannabis, and they're pretty overwhelmed at times with the medical people. We don't have a lab here on Maui. So we literally have to somehow get this hemp to Oahu to be tested and then come back and quarantine on top of it all. The rules, you know, basically now have the federal government and the DEA, you know, watching what our farmers are doing, growing crop that should never been on the DEA list in the first place. And they still haven't resolved a number of issues. I mean, while now you can grow a commercial crop, the state of Hawaii has now put any medicines, you know, CBD is one of the big medicines now coming out of uh, hemp growing. And basically, I can bring CBD isolate in from the mainland and make products out of it here in Hawaii, but I can't grow my own hemp, extract my CBD and put it in my own medicine, okay, and sell it in the state of Hawaii. That has now been passed off to the health department, which nobody knows what's going to happen next. Most of the stores in the state of Hawaii stopped carrying CBD products for a while. Now that the new hemp law has passed, they're bringing them back in. But again, 
they're not able to support local companies because of this strange rate of law is set up. I can sell CBD made in Tennessee, but I can't sell CBD made in Haiku here on Maui. So um, is there going to be a market for Hawaii-grown hemp, or can they just do it cheaper back on the mainland? We go back to, and we have to go to the cousin, you know, the, the, the cannabis marijuana you know, Maui Waui has been famous for the decades, forever on the mainland as the best-grown cannabis in the world. And the only difference between that and Maui hemp is there's no THC in it. We have climates here that can grow some of the finest cannabis in the world. And we have one unique thing is that we have a 365-year growing season. We can bring in three crops. So every acre in the island is three acres of hemp crop, which is Amazing when you realize that the entire hemp crop on the mainland will be harvested by the end of this month. There won't be any new material probably till, you know, almost the summer of next year from anywhere else except the state of Hawaii. People are talking now about sustainable agriculture and food, you know, part of sustainable agriculture. You know, we have fields here that have grown monocrops of sugar and pineapple for decades and are loaded with chemicals. Uh, one thing hemp does, it remediates the soil. It pulls all those poisons out of the soil. It pulls lead out of the soil. So most farmers want to grow a crop of hemp, not so much to sell it, but to clean up their soil. And then, you know, it's the first step for bringing a lot of our soil that has been misused for years and years back into production. That was the perspective of Steve Rose, the chief hempster of the Maui Hemp Institute for Research and Sustainability. We were talking about the challenges hemp farmers face, even under the new rules that allow hemp to be grown here in the islands. There were some 50 farmers under the pilot. It's unclear how many will apply to continue under this new program that kicks in this weekend. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the Homa Shop offering a selection of art-inspired items. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions. Also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. And we're also hoping that support for Hawaii Public Radio will come from you listening right now at home or in your car, uh, wherever you may be. Thank you so much for listening, uh, and please consider taking uh, the next step to becoming a financial supporter of the station. My name is Ryan Coonerty. I'm a news reporter for Hawaii Public Radio, and we're taking a quick break from the conversation today to ask you to help out with our semi-annual club drive in which we raise money to keep the station and shows like the conversation on the air. We're working on a $6,000 goal for the hour, and we have uh, a little ways to go, $5,700 before 12 noon. So if you're the kind of person who listens uh, regularly, religiously to the conversation uh, to get your uh, one-stop shop of local news and information, uh, then please consider supporting that program because it is very expensive to produce. I'm joined uh, this morning by Hawaii Public Radio's marketing director, Gavin Goff, who has a little bit of a, a sweetener for you if you're on the fence about giving. That's right. I have a special deal that's good only until 1 p.m. today. Make a $10 a month donation as an HPRC standing member or give a one-time gift of $120 and we'll thank you with our exclusive HPR travel mail. 
black with a logo in white. It's double insulated, so you can take a hot or a cold drink with you wherever you go, and it doubles as a smoothie, so you can put a can or a bottle, keep it chilled in there too. This special price goes away at 1 p.m. today, so make a donation now to get in on the travel mug at $10 a month at hawaiipublicradio.org on the HPR mobile app or call 888-536-4700. And we have uh, even more for you today only. Uh, any pledge that comes in today, any donation, will be automatically entered to win a pair of round-trip tickets with Alaska Airlines anywhere they fly. Uh, you have to contribute by 7 p.m. tonight, so time is running out, uh, and there's no uh, minimum donation required to be entered for that. Um, you can, uh, you'll be automatically entered just by going to hawaiipublicradio.org and hitting the donate button, or by calling 1-888-536-4700. And again, that is anywhere Alaska Airlines flies. You could go to Barrow, Alaska, which is the only city in the United States above the Arctic Circle, or you could go to Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where some of our uh, programming is produced, uh, or anywhere else that they fly. And um, you know, this would be a great opportunity to get yourself set up for some post-pandemic travel that I know everyone out there is waiting for uh, when that becomes an option. So consider uh, giving to the station today, and then also be entered to win those tickets. At its heart, public radio is a grassroots operation. You give money to HPR, and that money helps pay the reporters, editors, and producers creating the finest journalism you'll find anywhere. Right now, we're asking you to join as a sustaining member by giving $10 a month if you're able or with a one-time gift. That money will help add up to the $720,000 we plan to make that journalism available to you at, at home, in your car, or on your mobile device. You can help us meet our goal for the hour at hawaiipublicradio.org or call 888-536-4700. And if the airline tickets didn't do it for you, maybe you're feeling, you know, like staying at home for the rest of this year, uh, there's another option for you, gathering in some uh, a gift of $10 a month for uh, the next hour and a half until 1 p.m., uh, a gift of $10 a month or a one-time uh, donation of $120 will get you an HPR travel mug so you can uh, you can keep yourself caffeinated during your long stays at home. Um, and it's got the HPR logo on it. It also doubles as a smoothie, so you can keep feeling hot or cold. Uh, and it's a great way to, uh, to show off your support of the station. So again, go to hawaiipublicradio.org and look for the donate button. $10 a month will get you that, and you can select that as your gift all on the website, um, and it only takes about two or three minutes. You can also call one 536 4700 We've got a few people to thank, all new members and all on Hawaii Island. Stephen Brantley of Volcano, David Luma of Paolilo, and uh, Angela Bowen and Rick Miller of Curtis Town. Thank you so much. One of the great things about supporting HPR is that you get to decide how much you want to give, whether you can do $5 a month, $30 a month, that's a dollar a day, or $100 a month. The sliding scale is up to you. Whatever you think you can swing and what value HPR gives you. HawaiiPublicRadio.org, 888-536-4700. We're going to be going back to the conversation in just a moment, uh, and we are still working on that goal. We have just over $5,000 to go and about 35 minutes to raise it. So if you support uh, the station and what Catherine 
and teams doing in the conversation, please consider going to hawaiipublicradio.org and uh, demonstrating that support right now. Now we're back to Kathleen and the conversation. All right. Thanks so much, Ryan and Dabney. You know, throughout this week, uh, we're taking a closer look at a recent report card on our environment. Hey, Lonumoku means island update. The Hawaii Community Foundation funded the report, and this is the third review to date. COVID-19 has certainly made us rethink our paradigm. It's been a tough year, but this crisis has certainly made us grateful for what we do have. Our weather, for one. Climate change is still in play, but uh, this year we have been blessed with milder weather patterns than we've had in recent years. No massive coral bleaching, just some paling. Retired NOAA scientist Jeff Polavina's backyard is the windward side of Oahu. We start there. I haven't seen as much bleaching in Lanakai. I think all linked to the trade winds. And this summer, uh, our trade winds were fairly consistent, so it kept the air temperatures you know, within range, normal range. We didn't have those extremes that we did in 2019 or in 2015. And the ocean temperatures, likewise, were not extreme because of the evaporation from the trade and, and some of the mixing. So the bleaching, while it was occurring from in Kailua and Lanakai, it wasn't uh, the levels that we saw, as you mentioned, back in 2019 and 2015. Yeah, because earlier this year, they said, oh, just the slightest hints of paling, but mm-hmm. uh, we, we really but, had good you know, weather. Yeah, but of course it used to be that bleaching was a, an unheard of event. I mean, the first bleaching was probably in with the El Nino of 97, 98, uh, and then we probably went another decade or so until we started to see a, a bleaching event probably, you know, in, in 2000. Um, and then starting in 2014, 2015, 2019, we saw a whole series of annual bleaching events. So, you know, it's there's there'll be year-to-year variability, but the trend is it's just we're seeing more bleaching events. Well, talk about our climate, because with COVID, it shut a number of our favorite recreational places down, which is a good thing because, you know, Mother Nature is being allowed to heal in areas that have just been traditionally overused because of uh, so many tourists coming in, you know, whether you live in Maui, the Big Island, or here on Oahu. Certainly the reduced number of visitors has been beneficial uh, to the uh Nearshore habitat, the reef and the, the beaches and our hiking trails, probably resulting also in less water usage and less electricity usage. But, you know, there's a downside to the attention that's been spent focusing on COVID, both locally and, and nationally and globally, and that is it's sort of taken the attention off of climate change. Um, even though we've had to deal with COVID impacts, our CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere have continued to increase. The pH in the ocean has continued to decline. The heat content in the ocean is steadily rising. So these are underlying changes that are ongoing. It just so happened that in 2019 in Hawaii, we didn't feel as much of the impacts because our trade winds were stronger, so we didn't have all those extreme temperature records that we had last year. We didn't see all the bleaching that we saw last year. We didn't have as many hurricanes in the eastern Pacific, again, because temperatures were cooler there. But, of course, on the mainland, you know, they face the impacts of climate change in terms of you know, incredible areas of uh, wildfires and uh, unprecedented numbers of storms in the uh, Gulf and the uh, Atlantic Ocean. So um, you know, the conditions are still changing uh, due to climate change. Uh, Hawaii perhaps is most vulnerable to sea level rise, and sea level rise has not only been 
continuing, but it's been the rate at which it's rising has increased. Uh, it's projected that Hawaii will face economic impacts due to sea level rise in terms of impacts to infrastructure and property uh, of about $20 billion by the end of the century. So over the next 80 years, the costs would be equivalent roughly to two more rail, Hawaii rail projects, Honolulu rail projects that would have to deal with, uh, which impacts uh, the taxpayers and the individuals. And that's based on current projections of sea level rise. But sea level rise keeps increasing, uh, or the rate of it keeps increasing. In the past five years, sea level rise has increased about 20% faster than in the previous five years uh, as more ice melts and, and the ocean uh, continues to warm. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenge going forward as we, as we work our way through this COVID crisis? I think you know, the Hawaii's biggest challenge, of course, is facing probably the rising sea levels, which mean you know, infrastructure has to be a, uh, there has to be a focus on how to respond to sea level rises, impacts on property and infrastructure. And if temperatures are going to continue to rise, uh, summer temperatures are going to uh, have result in some public health issues of heat stress and heat stroke, uh, which impacts farm workers, construction workers, uh, sport, sporting events uh, during the day. So those two sea level rise and rising uh, summer temperatures seem to be some of the most uh, imminent issues that uh, the state of Hawaii would have to address. What kind of impact do you think the economic crisis is going to have on our ability to respond to climate change? Yeah, the, you know, the, the impact that we've had already from the coronavirus uh, situation has left individuals, the state, uh, and the national government, the federal government, all uh, taking on more debt. And so not only has the attention been switched from climate change to dealing with COVID, but now our resource base of funding to move the economy onto uh, more renewable energy uh, away from fossil fuels, you know, the, the available funding is, is just not there from government sources or even individual sources. Can you talk about the global politics as well? Well, I mean, I think, you know, as the COVID situation pointed out, this climate change is also a global uh, issue, and it's going to require global coordination. Um, certainly, you know, being part of the uh, Paris Accord is, is really important. Uh, and being able to work in a global environment to address it um, on, a, on a global scale is really necessary. So if we're, with our, if we're uh, in conflict with our allies, that's not a good thing? No, that's not a good thing. I mean, I think we want cooperation and uh, collaboration in, uh, in addressing it and the ability of everyone to uh, reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, if uh, there's a battle over trade issues, uh, then people aren't going to be as willing to come to the table and make sacrifices in, in other areas, for sure. Is there anything else about sustainability that you think COVID has taught us? Well, certainly from the island perspective, you know, it's reminded us that now that we've seen what the island's been like with fewer visitors, you know, it raises the whole issue of what kind of visitor industry do we want and uh, how large an industry do we want um, and to balance it with 
the carrying capacity of the islands and our, our, our local resources. The challenge is going to be trying to you know, move forward and, and not just return back to you know, the way we, we were with as many visitors as we had while we're dealing with other issues like climate change. Anything else that you think would be important to underscore, you know, now that we have this environmental report and how we can use it to guide our way through this? Well, you know, the, the hard part is really to identify then, you know, what are, how, how we are going to move forward. We see the issues that have been raised, but finding solutions and legislative willpower is going to be the challenge. I haven't really heard of a, you know, of an option or a proposal as to how to move us off the tourist visitor industry in a way that uh, provides economic impact. So I think that even though there's this desire, the roadmap is still lacking. That was part of a conversation we had with retired NOAA scientist Jeff Polovina talking about the state of our environment and what we need to keep in mind as we think about the resiliency of our island communities going forward. Coming up in the next hour, we're learning about Hawaii's native birds. We're excited to bring you a new weekly feature. It's called Manu Minute. It's some bird songs, some science, all in a minute. It's our new collaboration with the University of Hawaii at Hilo, another example of the incredible things that your donation supports when you give to HPR. And now we go back to Ryan and Dabney to tell you how. Thanks so much, Catherine. And the way you can support the conversation is by going to hawaiipublicradio.org and clicking on that Donate button. Um, there's also a Donate button on the HPR mobile app that a lot of people use to live stream our broadcast. You can also call the call center at one 536 4700 We're working on a goal uh, for this hour of the conversation, about 25 minutes left, and we're trying to raise an additional $4,000 by 12 noon to support uh, the conversation and the work that Catherine and William and Harrison and Jason are doing there. So if you, uh, if you value the types of conversations like we just heard about climate change and how it's impacting Hawaii, then uh, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the station. Go to hawaiipublicradio.org. And uh, there's actually an, an additional incentive uh, available right now that uh, my partners are teaming Dabney Goff is going to tell you about. That's right. We have a flash match in the amount of $1,000 from former HPR board members Georgina Bush of Kaleokona and Rosemary Fazio of Kailua. This is only good until noon today, so another 25 minutes. If we can generate $1,000 in pledges, they will contribute another $1,000, and that will help us meet our hourly goal that much faster. You can help us with that at hawaiipublicradio.org or by calling 888-536-4700. And there's another great incentive to, uh, to give right now because for today only until 7 p.m., so just a few hours left, uh, anyone who donates to Hawaii Public Radio in any amount will be entered to win a round-trip pair of tickets on Alaska Airlines anywhere they fly. So you could go uh, as far east as Boston or as far north as Barrow. Costa Rica even when that becomes an option. Uh, so this is a great option. Um, you know, maybe you don't feel like using it right now uh, with everything going on in the world, but you'll be able to be entered to win those. And if you're that lucky person, um, that'll be a great thing to look forward to um, when this pandemic is behind us. So go to hawaiipublicradio.org uh, and look for the 
donate button or call one triple eight five three six four seven zero zero and uh, and get yourself entered to win those tickets on Alaska Airlines. At HPR, we provide programs that cement our community together with knowledge and insight. We're a place where you can turn to hear about what's happening in our world and in our state right now. And we're a place where you can turn to learn why things are happening, how they fit into historical context and what they might mean for the future. You can help keep all this going with a sustaining membership now at $10 a month or more at hawaiipublicradio.org or by calling 888-536-4700. And not only will you be supporting the station by doing that, not only will you be entered to win uh, round-trip fare tickets on Alaska Airlines, you will actually, uh, for the next hour, double your money to keep going to the station uh, without having to provide anything else out of your own pocket, thanks to Georgine Bush and Rosemary Fazio, those two HPR board members from Kona and Kailua, respectively. And uh, they've pledged uh, $1,000 in, uh, in a matching gift, which means that uh, up to the next $1,000, anyone who donates, uh, their, their donation will be doubled by uh, those two generous people. So now is a great time to support the station. Go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Help us meet that $1,000 match before our deadline of 12 noon. Yeah, we realize that not everybody's able to contribute right now, and that's totally okay, but that makes it that much more important that if you are able to contribute and support this nonprofit, non-commercial public radio station, that you do it, because you'll be helping ensure the service is available for others. And when you join at $10 a month or more, or $120 all at once, by 1 p.m. today, we'll thank you with our Koozie Scrabble mug. You can put a liquid drink in it or put a bottle or ten. And you'll be showing off your love for your favorite public radio station at hawaiipublicradio.org or call 888-536-4700. And uh, regular listeners to the station may remember that I used to work on the Congress station. That was where I started and was my first job in public radio. And I know firsthand how uh, much work goes into it, how difficult it is. It's a very small team compared to similar programs elsewhere. Uh, and that takes resources, and those resources come from you. Uh, that's where all of our funding comes from. So please, if you value the conversation and this type of long-form journalism that really is not available anywhere else in Hawaii, go to hawaiipublicradio.org and become a member today. We're now going back to the conversation. Thanks so much, Ryan and Dabney. And yes, Ryan Finnerty, solid reporter, part of our HPR team, uh, uh, proud to be part of the HPR newsroom. Uh, you know, today our uh, Honolulu Civil Beat Reality Check looks at the cluster of positive COVID-19 cases on the island of Lanai. Uh, reporter Brittany Light joins us with more on the story. Hi, Brittany. Good morning, Catherine. So we're catching up with you on Kauai, uh, but you have loads of information about what's going on on uh, Lanai. Did you make it over there? I did make it over there, yes. I rushed over there on Thursday when it became apparent that this outbreak was really starting to grow and could be, um, you know, quite a, quite a challenge for uh, healthcare workers to get their hands around. Um, so I was there from Thursday until Saturday evening. And uh, what I saw was really kind of a, a dramatic version of what our entire state has been through. Um, you know, the island had been COVID free for nearly seven months and, Suddenly, the virus, you know, seeped into the island and, and really spread quite quickly. There are um, 
right now are at least 79 positive cases, and that number could continue to grow. Well, I know uh, everybody was concerned because, you know, they were doing so well. They were COVID-free. You know, I was thinking, oh, that's a great uh, marketing, um, you know, aspect as they started to uh, welcome, you know, visitors back to the islands. Uh, and so it's just awful to hear the, the numbers keep climbing. Yeah, I spoke to someone who said that he had a friend who flew in on Wednesday, the, the day after that it became apparent that the virus had infiltrated the island. And um, this person flew in and said, oh, I'm flying to the one place in the United States that doesn't have COVID. Um, well, of course, that was quite bad timing. <laughs> yeah, not, that's unfortunate. Very unfortunate. So uh, uh, what were you able to find out about, you know, how this started or who's affected? Yeah, so, so far, there are at least 79 people affected, but there was a major testing drive on Saturday that um, upwards of 650 residents got tested. So those results are still coming in. It's possible that the numbers could climb as, as the results do trickle in. Um, but what we know is that the first recorded cases uh, popped up on October 20th, so a week ago, and uh, the virus at that time was detected in a healthcare worker who had a history of inter-island travel and uh, three employees of the Four Seasons Resort there. Um, and from there, you know, we know that uh, numerous kapuna have been affected, uh, infected with the virus and at least 15 school children. Some of those children have brought the virus home to their families um, so, you know, at least for the first few days, first week of this outbreak, you know, things were really spreading. Now, uh, residents are really, um, you know, masking up wherever they go. I saw everyone wearing a mask, whether they were walking the dog alone outside or behind the wheel of a car. And uh, people are really hunkering down at home and just trying to isolate and, and stop this from spreading. At the same time, healthcare workers are trying to understand just how deeply it's already pervaded um, the population. And, you know, we're keeping our fingers crossed that there isn't a serious, um, you know, there aren't serious cases, you know, that hopefully it's all mild uh, because their, their medical facilities aren't great there on the island. Uh, you know, very limited space and, and uh, limited equipment. Yeah, when I was there Saturday, at least as of Saturday, no one had needed hospital care. Uh, so that's good, and hopefully that's still the case, although I don't know. Um, and there is, of course, a hospital on the island, but really uh, for anyone who needs hospital care related to the coronavirus, the best that hospital can do is really to stabilize you and get you medevaced out to a facility on Maui or Oahu. Um, so... I think the predicament here is that, you know, if, if a lot of residents all at once need to be medevaced out, you know, that could pose some frightening challenges. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I know they're stepping up with testing. I think the hotels were providing kits. Uh, you know, hopefully there is a rapid response team that's there on island, you know, looking to see, you know, how they can manage this uh, properly because you don't want to see those numbers soar even more. Right. And I think, you know, the healthcare workers that I spoke to said, you know, we've just got a lot of intergener or multi-generational families. We've got, you know, multiple families all living in, in one home. And so that is, of course, a challenge. And it's a challenge across the state. You know, when a virus, the virus um, pops up in, in a family and you've got, you know, eight, 
10 or more people in a household, it's just almost impossible to keep it from spreading. So I know that that's an issue that they're dealing with now. Yeah, I, I know that's a concern. You know, like I said, they've just opened up tourism just a, you know, what, a couple of weeks into that, and, and, and this is a, a not a good thing. So uh, hopefully we can, uh, we can put a damper on this. But thanks so much, Brittany. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. Today we're launching a new feature on The Conversation. It's called the Manu Minute. Manu means bird, and the short segments will feature Hawaii's endangered birds. It's thanks to Patrick Hart, a professor in the biology department at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Take a listen to our first feature about the i'iwi, a rather showy and social creature. Eevee are beautiful honeycreepers with bright red body feathers and jet black wings and tail. They feed mostly on nectar, and their long curved bill has evolved to fit perfectly into the flowers of many native Hawaiian plant species. The Eevee sing a huge repertoire of songs, the most famous of which sounds a bit like a squeaky gate. Unfortunately, Eevee are extremely susceptible to avian malaria and can die from just a single mosquito bite. Because of this, their song can now only be heard in high elevation ovea forests where it's too cold for mosquitoes to live. And we're in a race against time to save these birds before mosquitoes invade these areas as well. You've been listening to Patrick Hart, the director of the UH Hilo Hakalau Forest Biological Field Station. Hart also runs the Listening Observatory for Hawaiian Ecosystems. The lab uses bioacoustics to study the social behavior of Hawaii's birds and maps out their populations in the native forests. Uh, He'll be bringing us our Manu Minute. Uh, The professor recalled how his passion for Hawaiian birds first began. I think it began when I arrived in Hawaii about 30 years ago now as a grad student. And uh, for my PhD work, I lived up in the forest at Hakalau, Forest National Wildlife Refuge. And I would just live in the forest for weeks at a time in a tent, pretty primitive camp, and just spend all day, you know, um, studying the behavior of just this incredible community of native forest birds up there. So yeah, that was just the beginning. And I've just, you know, been working with them at some level ever since then, really. And so the Eevee, what, what is it that I guess you're struck by with this creature? Well, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's iconic. It's just an iconic Hawaiian honey creeper. To me, it represents, it's just a great representative of, of Hawaiian forest birds. Um, you know, it's bright orange-red. It's got a long, curved orange bill and bright orange legs, and it's just really it's really vocal. It's constantly singing. It's found on all of the islands, at least originally. 
Um, you know, a lot of our forest birds are only are, are single island endemics, but the Evie is found on all of them. Uh, it it has, I guess, co-evolved with a lot of the plant species, so it feeds mostly on nectar from this from a variety of uh, native Hawaiian plants, and a lot of the flowers have evolved to fit perfectly with the bill of uh, nectar feeding honeycreepers like the EEV. So it's just, you know, it's just truly a great example of just a native Hawaiian bird that's just been part of the environment for, you know, a million years or more. So do you recall the first time you actually saw one? I mean, you probably heard it before you saw it. <laughs> yeah, like most birds, you hear most of them before you see them. And the Eevee's just, you know, particularly notable because it sounds like a squeaky gate in the forest and um, kind of a very nasally squawk sound. But yeah, I was on a field trip with my University of Hawaii bird biology class way back in the early 90s, and they had nets set up at Hakalau, and we actually caught one and was able to hold it in my hand. The first day I, I ever saw one, I was wow. able to hold one too. So that was pretty special. The Hawaiian honeycreepers, you know, they, they've been here for over 5 million years. So before most of the main Hawaiian islands had even formed, the honeycreepers were here already. And over this 5 million years, they evolved in the absence of mosquitoes. There's no mosquitoes native to Hawaii. And so they lost resistance to any sort of mosquito-borne disease like avian malaria. Then when humans got here, we brought mosquitoes. We brought birds with the malaria in them. And mosquitoes would go and, and bite the non-native birds that humans brought and then go transmit it to the native birds that had lost their resistance. And so the Eevee are particularly notable in that just it's been shown that a single mosquito bite is enough to kill a, an Eevee. We feel, you know, like we're in particularly big hurry to save these birds because even though you can still see them in a lot of parts of the islands, they have been declining pretty consistently over time. It's really just such an important piece of what makes Hawaii Hawaii is, is the native birds. You know, they've been so important to Hawaiians since they arrived. They're just incredibly important to the ecology of the islands. They're the major pollinators for a lot of the native plant species. They play real important roles in the forest as seed dispersers for most of the native Hawaiian plants and trees. It's a particularly important problem right now because with global warming, the mosquitoes seem to be increasing in elevation. So right now, most of the native birds are found in the high elevation forests where there's no mosquitoes, but the mosquitoes are increasing in elevation. And so the birds are declining because of that, especially on Kauai and on Maui. You know, we're in danger of losing a couple species on Kauai and on Maui in the next possibly even decade or two. Well, we did spotlight a project there on Maui where they uh -huh. were tr trying to transmigrate a, a population of the birds, right. the QEQ, and sadly, uh, where they were taking them to, those birds quickly succumbed to mosquitoes. So, you know, right now we have other technologies that are on the horizon, you know, for landscape-scale control of mosquitoes using a variety of techniques. In the next couple of years, it's possible to control mosquitoes in some of these forests with some of these developing technologies. So it's really just kind of a race against time, honestly, to get this done before we lose any more species. 
we'll be talking about the uwa'u, which is a seabird, and that one flies over people's heads at night in the dark when they probably don't even know it, but you can possibly hear its calls as it flies up Malka to nest in the high elevation areas. One we'll be highlighting is the song of the last bird known as the Kauai O'o, and it was last seen in the alakai of Kauai in the late 1980s. But we'll be playing the song of the last O'o, you know, singing for its mate that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Right. We don't want that to happen with any more of our birds. In our lab at UH Hilo, one thing we're doing is, is using the song of birds to improve the way that we monitor them, like monitor their distribution and abundance. So, you know, we're working on developing new ways to better understand how many that there are left and where they're located using their song. So you can put out, you know, automatic recorders in the forest, and then you can develop, you know, new machine learning algorithms to detect the songs of these rare species in the forest. So that's one of the developing technologies we're working on, and and also just understanding the role of and the importance of song and how variable it is with all these different bird species. And have you gotten pretty good at mimicking these bird calls? No, I'm terrible at it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I can share that one day I was out in, in my garden and I heard an unusual call, and so I tried to, you know, mimic it uh, with the whistle, and the yeah. bird landed on my head. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. That's a good <laughs> skill you have. There's not many birds that do that, <laughs> or well, it many was some- people that can do that. It was somebody's pet, but, you know, it wasn't oh, okay. an endangered bird or anything like that. But, uh, well, you need to work on your bird calls then, sir. Yeah, no, most of our Hawaiian birds, they just kind of look at you and laugh when you try and mimic them and get them to come close. <laughs> There's a few, though, that will come. So how different are they, let's say, from the bird calls from, you know, the Philippines or Florida? Well, one thing about our Hawaiian birds is they each species has a huge variety of different songs and calls that it makes. It seems like most parts of the world you go to, the birds have, you know, one or two songs. Not all of them, but a lot of them. But in Hawaii, they're just incredibly variable. They all have really big repertoires. Oftentimes, even individual birds were finding, like the oma'o, it's a native Hawaiian thrush, every individual oma'o sings differently than its neighbor, and they they seem to make up songs as they go along. Really? <laughs> Seems and, like and it. Is there any, I don't know, any explanation? We haven't figured that one out yet, no. Okay, all right. <laughs> something well, about living on islands, I think. Okay. I think it's something about living on an island. We have lots to crow about, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a particular favorite? I do. You know, it's one that most people haven't seen. It's called the Hawaii Akepa. And it was it only lives in a few high elevation forests on the Big Island and it's a bright orange bird. It's about the color of one of those traffic pylons that you see in the middle of the road. Wow. And they're tiny, you know, they're about the size of your thumb <laughs> and and they they nest in cavities high up in the trees and yeah, that's, that was one of the birds that I, I focused on when I was a grad student. So I've always just got a soft spot in my heart for the Hawaii Akepa. Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> we're, we're going to look forward to hearing that segment. But oh, yeah. Thank we'll you, thank you so much, Patrick Hart. And uh, we'll look forward to learning more about our Hawaiian birds. 
Well, thank you very much. That was Patrick Hart from UH Hilo adding to our lineup with a weekly segment we are calling the Manu Minute. Now back over to Pledge Central with Ryan and Dabney. much time dedicated to it. Uh, really no other media outlet here will do that. 